0: Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. I'm Ryan Howard, Creative Director at Annals of Surgery. And today we have another episode of our Annals of Surgery Journal Club series, where we discuss new and impactful papers from the journal. Today, we're gonna be talking about the intersection of the environment and surgery with a great new paper entitled, Empowering Surgeons, Anesthesiologists, and Obstetricians to Incorporate Environmental Sustainability in the Operating Room. We're lucky to be joined by two of the paper's authors, Dr. Elizabeth Yates and Dr. Louis Duen. Dr. Yates earned her medical degree from the University of Michigan Medical School. She's currently a general surgery resident at Brigham and Women's Hospital, where she's now completing two years of protected research time at the Center for Surgery and Public Health, while also pursuing a master's in public health focused on occupational and environmental health. She conducts interdisciplinary research examining the interface between surgery, sustainability, and climate change. Dr. Nguyen is a vascular surgeon at the Brigham and Women's Hospital and associate professor of surgery at Harvard Medical School. He earned his medical and business degrees from the University of Chicago, completed his general surgery residency at Barnes Jewish Hospital in St. Louis, and completed a vascular surgery fellowship at the Brigham as well. He also currently serves as vice chair of digital health systems in the Department of Surgery. He is a recognized leader in health services research and outcomes implementation, where he utilizes econometric analyses to better understand clinical outcomes. Thank you both so much for being here and uh, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much. We're excited to be here, Dr. Howard. Um, small world.
0: Yes, yes. I, I will note that Dr. Yates was a former medical school classmate of mine, and it is wonderful <laughs> to reconnect. Um, all right, so so I'm going to jump right in, and I think, you know, just kind of as a first question to start off, can you tell us what your motivation was behind this paper? Obviously, it was a big review of information that's out there on, you know, really kind of a cutting-edge topic in the field. Um, so what made you want to tackle this topic, and what are you hoping that readers take away from it now that it's in uh, publication? That's
1: a great question. Um Thanks so much for kind of letting us give a little bit of background, and it's actually convenient that we mentioned uh, that we went to medical school together, because my interest in the topic definitely developed there at the University of Michigan. I came into medical school really interested in the division of resources across our country and how that propagates disparities, especially in the health fields. And at the same time, coincidentally, my brother was in undergrad studying environmental science. And so I started to have this recurring thought process of... Thinking about how climate change and the environment really impact the outcomes for our patients. And then on the flip side, how our delivery of healthcare does impact the environment in which we live and does contribute to the problem of climate change. And I knew going into residency that I really wanted the opportunity to make a bit more of a research focus in that area and make those concepts that were being discussed in academic fields more accessible to a surgical audience. Because I really think we have the agency within healthcare to tackle and achieve tangible action on these issues
2: and I'll, and I'll add that you know Liz and other people um, in her generation been uh, very informed about environmental um, impact uh, but the rest of us especially those who work in medicine and surgery don't think of it we we don't make that connection uh, naturally until recent times and so uh, I think one of the perspectives I add to the paper is the fact that you know for us who are perhaps non-believers or, or uh, slow to believe in some of these things and especially if there are impact uh, the paper also addresses uh, the fact that we clinicians are busy and we have these other responsibilities so how can we uh, incorporate environmental sustainability do it well but still of course take care of our patients which is the first goal so it's it's a it's a it's a paper that doesn't just wave the theoretical flag but understands the practicalities of some of the implementation.
0: Yeah, and that was actually something I'll say that stood out front and center was, you know, you have this framework and these steps really to address this, you know, at an institutional level, at a local level for anyone who picks up the paper and reads it. Um, You know, I'll, I'll say it's interesting to see these kinds of considerations and, you know, these practical steps become increasingly important in surgery Um, You know, one of the things I remember is this year's ASA Presidential Address was entitled Greening the Operating Room, which even when I, as a student, was thinking about surgery, I just think was not on my radar or many people's radars. Um, So clearly, environmental sustainability is garnering more attention. Um, Why do you think it's, it's, you know, generating attention specifically in surgery? Obviously, it's got, you know, worldwide attention, but... I guess, what's the call to this in the surgical field? Why do surgeons need to pay attention to this?
1: Maybe one of my favorite questions to answer and talk about at length great. with anyone who will tolerate my enthusiasm. And that's why I was so excited to see that Dr. McCloud did choose that topic for her presidential address. It was a great um, choice, um, my humble opinion. And I think the trend among surgeons reflects the growing national recognition whether it be just in the public sphere and the policy sphere and increasingly across every subspecialty within healthcare are engaging with the concept that climate change is actually a major public health threat, the number one threat existentially of our generation. And it's interesting because we are grappling with the fact that on the flip side, we also are contributors to this problem. So although we treat the subsequent effects of the Um, challenges that climate change poses to our patients. We also contribute emissions. Uh, The most recent estimates, and we can certainly provide you any documentation you want, but um, is about 9% of all carbon emissions in the U.S. come from the healthcare system. And in fact, uh, OR specifically, you know, why surgeons should care, unsurprising to most of us, are very energy intensive, about three to five times more per uh, patient hour in the OR than someone staying on a ward. And so as surgeons, we're culpable in this in this problem, but it also gives us agency to lean in and identify solutions. And that was really the goal of this paper to kind of identify the issue, but also empower people to take action.
2: Yeah, and, and stepping back on the bigger picture, I think surgeons and other interventionists have been leaders in our space. Um, in, in things medical, but in also things that are non medical. And so I think this is an opportunity for us as a surgery, uh, as a group, to step forward and say, hey, we care and we are part of this system as well. And let us put our elbows into this um, and, and contribute. And, and uh, hopefully others will follow. And I think the other thing, which is really relevant to Liz, is that I, I, I've mentored a lot of people and uh, traditional outcomes research and so forth. But this is another, I think, viable track. For those who are inclined to do academic and um, other pursuits, where we can do surgery and uh, environmental sustainability as a fine, a track, well-defined, a lot of research, a lot of advocacy, a lot of implementation. So, you know, I think that's why we have to to make this available as a a pathway for the young residents coming up through the, the
0: system. You know... That, that's, a, that's a fantastic point. And I, I see parallels to, you know, there's, for example, a lot of research within surgery about social determinants of health. And even though, you know, these are not surgical diseases per se, we see the outcomes of, you know, social determinants, environmental determinants in our patients. Um, do you think surgeons are particularly attuned to maybe some of these effects that make them natural leaders for this cause?
1: I think that's the unique tie that I hope everyone eventually comes to. Um, It's really what's drawn me into this work is that I really believe climate change will drive uh, social disparities and ultimately health disparities for our generation of practitioners. And the reason we don't necessarily don't have a way to put our thumb on exactly what those outcomes are is because it's such a new field and the research isn't there yet. And, you know, the questions that I have that I would love for I hope to tackle and I would love for other um, up and coming surgeons to get involved in is, you know, how do things like major storms that delay surgical care or power outages that are precipitated by the ongoing increase in natural disasters ultimately impact our, our outcomes? And you need to start asking the questions, the right questions to be able to understand the direct connection, because it's actually much less tenuous than you might think on first glance.
2: You know, people think of the effects to be long term, you know, and, and unfortunately, we've had a lot of storms um, and a lot of climate change, and the, you know, hurricanes in New England and so forth. So once that happens, people, I think it's it's more direct connection and they realize that it's not a theoretical thing that's 20 years down the ride, that we are seeing some of those effects. And this is just the beginning. So it, it has been a little fortuitous that we've had such bad weather because I think it's made people recognize um, that. Now is the time to act.
1: Yeah, and it's certainly being recognized on a policy level as well. And I don't know how much everyone follows kind of uh, national policy from this perspective, but the uh, Department of Health and Human Services just this month, this past month, established an Office of Climate Change and Health Equity. And so, at the broader health and public health realm, this is starting to be a major conversation, and it sounds like it's here to stay. And so, as surgeons, you know, we don't want to fall behind the times at all. We are as Dr. Nguyen has highlighted, used to being leaders in our fields. And we have the opportunity here to keep doing that.
0: I think that's really powerful. You paint this picture where caring for patients is synonymous with caring for the environment because of all, all these determinants that, that the patients experience. Um, uh, to get a little more into the weeds, and, and Liz, you know, you mentioned kind of this is so new, we're still trying to figure out how to men- uh, measure it. One of the concepts that you mentioned in your paper that seems really integral to this kind of work is this concept of a life cycle analysis as something that institutions or providers should probably be doing to understand their environmental impact. So for those of us unfamiliar, because I certainly wasn't when I read your paper, um, could you explain what that is and how healthcare systems can use that as part of their sustainability efforts?
1: Absolutely. It's a great question and it will be a little bit getting into the weeds, but I think that's important because it's important to understand for anyone new to this field that there are existing methodologies that are tried and true to quantify and get at some of these questions. We're not just, you know, putting a hand out in space and coming up with an idea and saying, hey, this is the solution that we need to follow. As surgeons, we like data-driven answers and there are ways to get those types of answers in this space specifically life cycle analysis or life cycle assessment, LCA, for those in the know, um, is a way to account for the total environmental impact of a specific product or process. And it follows that product or that service from what we call cradle to grave. Now, if we step back and conceptualize that within climate science and climate change, there's a few concepts we need to understand. I think most people recognize that climate change is driven by the release of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, most commonly carbon dioxide or CO2. And those gases retain heat within the atmosphere and that increased heat energy is responsible for all the downstream effects like increased natural disasters, precipitation, heat waves. Um, And there's a lot of other issues that come along with that. And when we burn fossil fuels that release those gas emissions, we also create pollution. We have environmental degradation that are not typically considered climate change per se, but are environmental impacts. And a life cycle assessment actually looks at every type of environmental impact, not just the carbon emissions. It is a standardized process that's actually defined by the ISO. And it really allows you, like you said, to document for each product or each service that you're providing, what is your environmental impact? For an example, I think about it a lot when people ask me, and I get this question a lot. So are single-use devices really much that much worse? Right? You know, is it so bad that I'm throwing these away? It feels terrible. And the answer is you'd have to do an LCA to find out and compare the two different options. Because when you think about it, a single-use device is typically made from plastics and then packaged in plastic packaging. Anytime you make plastics, that's essentially a very heavy fossil fuel intensive process. Plastics are basically fossil fuels in solid form. And then not only do you need to make that device, it gets transported, it ends up in your OR, and then it gets disposed of, transported to some sort of landfill. It doesn't feel good because you know it's going to last for a long time. But on the flip side, our multi-use devices often require even more intensive production. They may on the front end use more fossil fuels. And then their cleaning process may also require intensive energy especially if they're very intricate devices and when we say multi-use they're not here forever you know some devices can be used 20 times some can be used 40 but it's not a forever option especially with a constantly evolving technology and so it's constantly balancing that cradle to grave approach that allows us to really provide the best answer to that type of question and without LCA we wouldn't have that opportunity
0: and is that, I'm, I'm curious, it, you know, these LCA processes, is this something that a healthcare system would have a, a, I don't know, a division or a department pre-existing that could do this for them? Or would they have to bring in consulting to do that? Because um, it seems like, you know, the, the benefits they could reap from that, just understanding like what is their footprint could really change practice.
1: Yeah, if I, I mean, if I ran a hospital, we'd have a department for it, um, but it's not common uh, at this point in time. There certainly are, uh, one, academic researchers who are well-known and have built their uh, academic careers on this specific type of research, uh, and increasingly, they've engaged with surgeons to answer questions like laparoscopic versus open, single-use versus uh, multi-use for specific procedures. But more commonly, especially in the corporate world, um, you're looking at a consulting service that does this regularly. And the nice thing is when you've done it once, it becomes a little bit easier. And then you can actually build databases of different products to give you an estimate of what different types of products kind of have as an environmental impact. And it would be great if in the healthcare industry, we could build a database where we could go and check and make a choice in our purchasing process about which one is better for the environment, you know, single versus multi, uh, washable drapes versus uh, disposable ones. These will be great questions to answer consistently.
0: That's great. I guess staying on kind of a measurement theme, um, you know, I've also seen carbon emissions frequently measured, and there's these different scopes, I, I guess I understand, of, of carbon emission measurement. Um, which seems like another central part of the work to reduce institutions' carbon footprints, right? Um, They need to measure this, but there are all these different levels to it. So I guess, what are the different scopes of emissions and how does that factor specifically into the work that a healthcare system might wanna do to start addressing their carbon footprint?
1: Yeah, I think of it as, uh, in comparison to LCA, LCA looks kind of the microscopic single process and scoping is a bigger institutional level option. You and I might be interested in the very specific life cycle assessment of the procedure that we do. A hospital would be more interested in the scope uh, assessment. And when you talk about it, the other difference is that an LCA process will look at every environmental impact, you know, water use, land degradation, and carbon emissions. Scopes of emissions are specifically focused on the greenhouse gases released into the environment from a specific institution. And it can be divided into three groups. We can take healthcare institutions as a very relevant example. Scope one would be the direct emissions from any sources owned by the institution. If there were a power plant on-premises, you know that would be um, an example of direct emissions. But more commonly, um, a lot of hospitals will own security vehicles and the gases burned to move those vehicles will be part of scope one. And something people don't think about a lot is actually anesthetic gases, our greenhouse gases, that are emitted directly into the atmosphere every day. And some of them have a really high warming potential. And that's scope one as well, directly released into the environment. Scope two is the emissions that are responsible for any energy that our hospital or institution uses. So if we buy our electricity from a provider that burns coal to make the electricity, We would be considered responsible for all of the carbon that goes into the atmosphere to power HVACs and the OR to turn on and off those fancy lights and all of that. And then lastly, scope three is a catch-all. It's just everything else associated with your institutional function, institution's function that isn't caught up in scope two. And so when I think about healthcare, things that come to mind are every single product we buy to furnish our awards and ORs. Any fossil fuels that were burned in the process of making those products and transporting them to our hospitals are considered scope three. And then importantly, our own travel as well as patient travel. So that's why things like telehealth become very relevant um, in thinking about scope three emissions. So to review, direct emissions, scope one, uh, emissions associated with the energy you use in your institution, scope two, and then the catch all scope three.
0: I think, you know, a a question for both of you um, that I see kind of being a theme in this and and is probably why this work is so challenging to address, um, you know, so many of these emissions and LCA-type measures, um, they're they're measuring things that are kind of external to what we think of as, you know, the work a hospital does or what happens in the OR. And so I'm sure you both kind of, you know, run into this tension between, we want to you know invest in the best lights and the best oR and the best equipment, and there's almost this lack of an incentive to also you know pay attention to this stuff that's external to what we traditionally think of as our four walls. Um, how do we i guess turn the tide on that because you made such a compelling argument earlier that we do need to do this to to provide the best care for patients, but I've got to imagine. It might be hard at an administrative level to say, hey, this, this stuff really matters, even though it might be happening a thousand miles away from our hospital.
2: I'll start with that. I think that, you know, um, one of the things we, we want to say is that hospital care, as far as the environment and uh, our impact, Uh, and patient care are not mutually exclusive, you know. And so I think if the hospital, the department, um, the division says, this is one of our many goals, then when we, it's time to pick those lights um, and we have a comparison, that energy impact should be one of many factors. You know, of course it's low energy, but if if it's dark and we can't see and do our jobs, then that's kind of a thing. So I think just having that a stated goal amongst all the other goals will help people make that trade-off and um, and, and feel people will feel empowered to, to sort of make that decision with that in mind. So I think that's probably the, the quick, easy answer to that.
1: Building upon that, that's why these kinds of conversations are so important because not every surgeon is going to feel passionate. This is the extra thing they want to do with their time. But for those who do, engaging in this work and defining processes that are environmentally sustainable but don't impact our efficiency or our quality of care is where we can find our niche of success and make our impact in this in this space. And that's really what this paper has been about, is giving people the tools. So to, I uh, take that first step towards making an impact. And I would argue data shows that it's a win-win for hospitals. I mean, every... Sector of the economy around sustainability is booming and growing so quickly, um, and I'm certainly never an advocate for greenwashing or, or um, tooting your horn more than it's worth. Um, but if you're making and making good choices and doing the work, you know, publicize it, and I think people will care.
0: That's great. So, so that actually segues perfectly into my next question, um, which is just basically. You know, are there strategies or things that hospitals could be employing right now to make their surgical processes more green? Um, You lay out this great practical guide and these considerations. There's obviously pros and cons to the different approaches. You've already mentioned this idea that, sure, single use might, you know, require less sterilization measures, but also it ends up in a landfill. Um, So there's this balance. Um, So are there compelling things that even right now healthcare systems could start employing to to get more green?
2: You know, uh, Ryan, as you said in our paper, we talked about a lot of areas uh, that uh, hospitals and departments can look at to say, hey, is this relevant to us? But maybe we can comment on sort of the how, right? So that's the what, Mm -hmm. how do we do it, as I think you're alluding to. And as the the famous ex uh, or former Congressman from Massachusetts was fond of saying, you know, all politics is local. And we think that all environmental Mm -hmm. impact and change is also local. Um, And so, um, so we, we think a couple of things, a a little short list of tips to to, to how to do it. Number one is to uh, identify and engage the the allies. It turns out there's a lot of people who are individuals who are like, yeah, I, I care, but I don't know where to go. You know? And so when we walked around Uh, and talk to people nurses uh, everyone else it was a big deal one of the pleasures of of this was all the environmental services folks that that they work while we're like taking the patient out and and all of a sudden we come back to a clean or and we knew they were there but we really never stopped to thank them and to follow them along uh, into what they do and where they take uh, all that trash and so the second point is to walk through that process. you know, follow the trail of the resources, the supplies, the trash. Liz and I did it. We went to the basement, to the compactor, <laughs> out to the truck. I mean, because that does that just doesn't disappear. It goes somewhere. And then eventually, we, of course, we didn't go to the landfill, but you know, <laughs> so it was there. So walk, we would encourage people to walk through the process uh, and with environmental eyes to think about the lights and, and everything else. And you'll probably quickly identify some things that you could least question about. Um, thirdly, would be to start with simple interventions. You know, everyone wants to solve the world in one big swoop. And I think it's hard. Again, trying to make a meaningful impact without disrupting all the patient care and all the patient safety. So I think there's some ways you can make really good interventions uh, one at a time, like the biggest things are low hanging fruit and then get people excited about it. All of a sudden people are like, Oh, I heard you're doing this. How can I get involved? And it, it becomes a bigger and bigger thing and a systems process uh, education, there's another one, uh, people just don't know, I, I didn't never knew where the trash went, or I never knew if this was recyclable, what do I do with it, or this equipment is reusable, so uh, we've been doing a lot of education, um, we have a red bag project, we try to reduce red bag waste, a lot of that is just education, um, and, and, and so that's been really helpful, and, and I think the final thing, you know, especially as an um, area of, of focus, is to measure. We don't measure as much uh, trash and, and where it comes from, and so if you don't measure where it's coming from, then you can't measure any sort of implementation changes. So those are kind of basic tips from from our standpoint about the how, uh, and then the what and the, the whats are, are outlined in
1: the paper. Yeah, and I I'll build off Dr. Wynn there that you know this great list of tips he's used and and laid out. Can be applied to any of the interventions that we kind of broke down between the infrastructure and equipment and the patient care processes like you said the most important thing is to get started use those tips and pick one that would be low hanging or kind of have very few barriers because i think what he's alluding to is also getting a small success even if it's not a big impact on the carbon footprint the first time you try something allows you to build those allies and build momentum so that you can start to have ongoing conversations and do some of the things we've talked about in terms of building this work into the workflow of you as a surgical provider, but also as an advocate and someone who's a leader in the hospital system to really push for potentially bigger changes down the road. That's great. I'm
2: sorry. Oh, go ahead. ahead. So from a moral and uh, morality, Uh, um, um, standpoint, we do a lot of things in the house because we must, you know, there are regulations and it's the right thing to do, of course, but we we don't do a lot of things because we should. And, And this is one where we do, we're doing it. This is volunteer work. This is, for a lot of folks, this is extra steps to, you know, save that product for recycling or whatever. And in many ways, if when people are inspired to do that, it adds a little bit of an extra uh, purpose to our jobs, not just that we have to do these things, um, because we should we should be doing these things um, for ourselves and our children.
1: At least I'll say, I'm, I've been surprised. Um, I don't know how many conversations you've had about this, Dr. Howard, with anyone around your hospital, but I was apprehensive when I first started this work to open the door and have those conversations. Um, but Dr. Wood makes a good point. Even from the old guard, there's a lot of people out there who who think this is the right thing and they just don't know how to get started. Um, And that enthusiasm just needs a place to go.
0: Yeah, I I, I think, you know, you you paint this picture of um, a process that really relies on kind of these core quality improvement um, steps, right? Go see the work, you talk to the people doing the work. I, I think that's fantastic. And it it sounds like um maybe part of your early success um has been just in these little wins like you say, you know, getting people mobilized around it. Um you know, your your paper ends I think with this really um incredible and I think kind of daunting parallel to the tragedy of the commons, right, where kind of these common resources get spoiled because there's not really an incentive to maintain them. And it sounds like maybe part of creating that incentive is to show just these little successes, that th- this change is possible. It's certainly the morally responsible thing to do. Um, do. Have you seen that change minds or do you think there are other things that might get attention and, and kind of amplify these projects that you've, you've had success in?
2: Yeah I, yeah, I would say so, and uh, thank you for bringing up the tragedy commons in our paper, it's uh, obviously a favorite topic of mine, for, and for those listeners who aren't aware, it's the issue, it was actually uh, an economics um, paper written about this theoretical field, a common field where um, people would bring their cows, and over time, people would bring more cows and would chew up the common resources. And no individual was motivated to restrain himself because no one else, he could not depend on others to restrain themselves. He would be harming himself um, by doing so. And, and the environmental um, care process is like that because we, we, we are small individuals, uh, small contributors, but if everyone did that and ignored it, because we didn't think it mattered, then the whole system would break down. It's a shared resource. So I think that's an important part because if you understand, well, why are people doing these things? We, we have the science, we, we understand. Why aren't we behaving like we should? It's because of this behavior economics problem where no one thinks they are empowered to do it uh, and that they wouldn't make a big impact. So I think we put that in because we recognize that and that's a, one of the key steps to changing behavior. Is just say, well, the topic the, the common, the tragedy of commons problem has a lot of um, uh, published theories and, and and practices. But for us, it's like you can make a difference, or right? we as a group can make a difference, and we are going to shepherd our little commons, which is our Oars, uh, in a way that everyone has agency, everyone has input, and that we're going to do our part, um, and hopefully, and and demonstrated by this paper and this uh, podcast other people will follow suit in their own little comments uh, and, and spread the word and then together that's how we can make a difference. It starts with one individual.
1: there are so many ways that you can think about climate change and apply different concepts. Uh, Dr. Wynn's experience in economics and behavioral economics has been so valuable to our efforts here at the Brigham um, I do also want to call out though kind of similarly couching climate change in different lenses. That this paper and a lot of the work we do um, in our institution does also have a lens and a mindset towards global surgery. You know, we're talking a lot about the domestic high income country experience in this paper, um, but we've had contributors to this paper as well as collaborators across the, the academic space who really highlight the fact that when you step back, climate change is not just a national problem, it's a global problem. Um, And as we try um, and need to scale up surgical infrastructure globally, we could see this problem recreated um, in many developing countries. If they develop just like us, they're going to end up being 10 percent of their national emissions. But I actually try to challenge people to flip that on the head and recognize and name this tragedy of the commons. that you know, no one's really incentivized to do anything individually, because they don't feel like they are going to benefit or they're going to make an impact. But if you name it, and you identify that as a logical fallacy, then we can maybe flip the narrative and start to talk about why it's important for high income countries to support the scaling up of sustainable surgical infrastructure globally, and allow developing countries to actually become leaders in this space. You know, it's a lot easier to build green infrastructure from the beginning than it is to retrofit the old stuff that we've got going right now. Um, And I really do think, you know, applying these interdisciplinary concepts, whether it come from behavioral economics or from global surgery, we're going to need to tackle those problems from so many different angles that I'm sure we haven't even thought of in this podcast. So if, if people out there have different perspectives on it, you know, it's something that needs to be shared, written about, and talked about more.
0: Yeah, and and I'm curious, you know, just to maybe um, put a point on it, if you have seen or participated in examples of successful sustainability initiatives, things that have changed either locally or as part of a global surgery effort um, or just anywhere that, you know, have been inspiring examples of of successes in this area.
2: I mentioned at the start that one of uh, Liz and I's major projects is uh, what we call uh, Watching Our Waste. And the initial one was the uh, reduction of the red bag waste. Um, And so, again, the logic is that, hey, the bag is open and we're all busy. We're uh, vascular surgery. We're kind of a little bloody. So we take (laughs) our stuff off and we hit our trash into the first available can. In reality, uh, when we educate people, we realize that that not all of that needs to be in there um, and the cost of it and the, the processing of it. And so we are uh, working with behavior economics to do little nudges so that the can that's most convenient is the not the one with the red bag, Uh, or we don't even open the red bag for many of the cases so that there's no sort of temptation to do that. So that work is ongoing. um, um, And and we hope to share that in publication sometime soon.
1: Yeah. And I I think that, you know, what is a successful intervention? Definitely, you know, especially in the. Nature of really following the model of QI, um, the, you know, identify the problem, uh, identify the intervention, measure and um, uh, share and then replicate. We really do want to apply those principles to this kind of work and encourage anyone else who's interested to do the same because people are starting to engage in it. But for us to do this in the best way possible, going a little slower and being rigorous and measuring pre-post outcomes, really thinking about the financial cost and benefit as well from every angle is so important. And for better or worse, the uh, lingua franca of surgical practice is peer-reviewed publications and making sure that, you know, the type of work you're doing the interventions are at that level of rigor so that they can be shared and then replicated by people across the country has real value to it. Um, And that's our hope as well.
0: No, I agree I, I certainly at annals I mean that is a cornerstone I think to changing practice right just getting the word out there um and I think with a topic like this like you said that's kind of so new in the in the field of surgery just showing others that people are talking about this um and that there is a path forward um you know how has it changed the way that both of you like look at an OR you know you walk into an OR and I've got to imagine that you now have a very different conception than most of us have when we look around at the set that just got opened and the laparoscopic tray and and like you said, even the, the waste bags and the different types of those. I mean, yeah, I, sometimes I incorrectly use the linens bag or the scrubs bag or the trash bag. So clearly I have a lot of learning to do here as well.
2: <laughs> I'll start with that one as the senior surgeon in our uh, pair here. <laughs> Um, I think I would, we would like to make this the new normal, you know, so we're used to measuring efficiency, turnover time, obviously patient safety outcomes and so forth, but add to that very important list, uh, the environmental impact, right. That the new normal, um, and, and, and patient care comes first, safety comes first, of course. Um, but amongst those, uh, goals, the environmental impact so that we, we keep thinking about it. And I, I, we have examples, you know, where, we walk in and we nicely say, oh, did you know when, when it was a calm time, did you know that this, you know, it is five times as much to cost us? We shouldn't be doing that. And there I had an example where uh, one of the staff said, you know, I, I agree, but I didn't want to say anything, you know, and, I, and again, mm-hmm. because he or she was, uh, you know, sort of not, they were in a junior position. And so I think, and the other senior person was like, "Oh, you're right. You know, I was just too busy. You're absolutely right. You know, and every, everyone was friendly. Everyone uh, did the right thing, and it was a friendly environment. There was no punitive uh, blame at all. So it should be the new normal that mm-hmm. we think about these things and we help each other do those things amongst all of our busy things we have to do. So it's it's not a it's it's not punitive in any way.
1: Yeah, for me, it's also opened up an ability to see other people's workflows." in a way that I hadn't considered before. Um, And certainly it's not everyone's responsibility to understand the intricacies of the anesthesiologist's job and the circulator's job and the uh, assistant's job and the environmental services uh, staff. But by taking the time to really understand their workflow and ask them questions about what are the problems you see? Have you thought about this before? Have you thought about the environmental impact? And what would you improve if you could? Uh, I've actually had a lot of recommendations and useful projects come out of those kinds of conversations. And I've even learned about things that were already ongoing in our hospital that, you know, the tree hugger extraordinaire among the surgery department didn't even know about. Uh, and, you know, I, I found out that one of our nurses has been pushing for a reprocessing program of our surgical devices for years um, and has had some successes, but really needed a platform to stand on. Um, to increase the efficacy and and use of that program. And so making sure that you see each person's agency and ability to improve things um, is a new perspective that I may not have taken the time to to engage with had I not had this research opportunity.
0: I I get the sense even that this journey has been one of those where you kind of worry about the ability to to generate buy-in. Um, but then as you go about it, you find all these people are already kind of interested in it or have thoughts about it um, and are kind of natural allies.
1: Absolutely, I mean, how many of us at home, you might I will say my program, former program director pulled me aside once and said, my kids would murder me if I put the paper in the trash and not the recycling. <laughs> and yet I realize that I'm wasting left and right in my OR and I just don't know where to start. Um, and you know, I've been actually quite surprised because I am conscious of the unique political lens that this kind of work can be seen through. But I do believe that by highlighting the fact that climate change and environmental impacts are truly a public health issue and not a political one, we can start to redefine that conversation. And again, that's the whole point of this paper is to empower trusted uh, voices like surgeons in the healthcare community to do that work and shift that narrative.
0: Great. Well, I, you know, I think I want to wrap it up with maybe one more question. We've talked a lot about the healthcare system side, what we can do as surgeons, um, what administrators can do. Um, But I'm really curious to how you see um, kind of the patient experience fit into this. And You know, I'm sure for even the most environmentally conscious patients, there may be some sense of, you know, I'm about to have surgery. I want every expense, resource, ability, you know, used um, for my care, which is totally understandable. Um, And so you mentioned this increasing awareness of sustainability in general. How do you think patients perceive these efforts? Um, And I guess, what are the important highlights that we need to make sure patients are a, a part of that conversation as they develop?
1: I think that's a really important tension that people assume, maybe not see, but assume is there that more sustainable care is somehow less. And that's what we really want to shift um, the conversation on and shift the narrative on, because at the end of the day, what we're trying so hard to do is to identify systems that allow us to deliver optimal care in the most sustainable way. If we're going to use all the technology that we have spent so many years investigating and developing, then we need to advocate with our hospital systems that the electricity that powers that comes from sustainable sources. If we're going to continue to run these operating rooms that use single-use devices and have massive waste, then we need to make sure that we're optimizing our waste streams. None of that ultimately impacts patient care or care delivery, as long as we design systems that don't slow down our work workflow um, as clinicians. And that's why I think, you know, if you have a passion for this and want to become a leader in this space, clinician involvement is so important to make sure that that patient experience isn't impacted or the ones who have the ability to ensure that tension is to find the middle line of that tension. We can really do that if we set our minds to it.
2: And I'll echo Liz, but maybe from an administrative and marketing standpoint, you, you're so, what we do with the environment and what we do with patient care are not mutually exclusive. You know, it, it's, it, they're, they're separate pies. And, and so, and I think in many ways, patients, uh, if they know that we're as a system, as providers at a hospital are doing these extra things that we don't necessarily need to do, but are doing it, that says that we are looking at the big picture and that we are capable of doing more than just, you know, what we're supposed to do or we're chartered to do uh, that we care about the future. But the practicality of it is, too, that this reduced costs, and that means more care for additional patients, um, and uh, longer uh, longer sustainability for, uh, you know, to run the hospital, to open new uh, areas, um, new buildings, and so forth, and still have a small impact on the environment. So, and I, I, we recognize that a patient's undergoing, you know, sort of urgent care, you know, for, for, for very serious diseases may not be thinking of that, but we do think that 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 sort of environment that we create and the happiness that the people, the employees have when they're doing their extra part, uh, can make a difference, and and that that can be said. So so they shouldn't be mutually exclusive, uh, but I can understand how people can think that at first.
0: Yeah, and it's certainly you know from reading the paper and the discussion today, it seems like these efforts are integral to accessibility efforts, you know, equitability efforts, um, pretty much, you know, all the issues that healthcare systems want to tackle to deliver better care to
1: patients. Yeah, we couldn't agree more, Dr. Howard.
0: <laughs> well, well, wonderful. Um, Dr. Yates and Dr. Wynn, I want to thank you so much um, for joining us today. I thought this was just a wonderful conversation and um, I really appreciate your time.
1: We appreciate being here. Thanks so much.
0: Thank you for having us.